Amen. Please have a seat. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for coming out to our second outdoor service of summer. (laughs) Welcome to Oregon. This is fantastic. It was like cold last week and it's indoor this week. So uh, hopefully this tells you what to expect this summer. Uh, Lots of change. That's all right. We're conditioned for change now after the last year, right? So this is no big deal. Uh, This is kind of nice. Um, Last week... I talked about uh, the beginning of the book of Galatians. We, we talked about the first five verses, and, uh, and we really took some time to dig in and examine the real gospel. I'm going to touch briefly on that this morning, but if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen online, pull it up and listen to it this week, because it is so sweet. All right, we're going to spend time today talking about the counterfeits and the fakes and the frauds. We're going to spend time talking about the false gospels, the distortions that would lead us astray, that would take us away from the gospel entirely, which is fine, and it's helpful, and it's necessary, which is why we're going to do that this morning. But if we don't first examine and cling on to the real gospel, the gospel of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he comes and saves us, then, then to focus on the negatives, to focus on this side of the coin is worthless. So uh, know first the real gospel that's so important. Um, as we get out of verse 5 and into verse 6, you may have noticed that Paul launches right into this by saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In most of Paul's other letters, we have some greeting. He takes a little bit of time to welcome, uh, you know, say, hey, greetings from me and so and so. And he takes a little bit, you know, I thank God for you and I pray for you. And, and there's kind of a warm greeting there. And then he moves on into correction and, and rebuke in some cases and encouragement. But with the, the letter to the Galatians, one more reason this letter is unique is that Paul wastes no time getting right into the correction. He wastes no time. He says, I am astonished. I can't believe it that you are deserting so quickly him who called you. I'm I'm astonished by this. And, And you can tell that this is heavy on Paul's heart. You can tell that he cares deeply because he just launches right into it. It's, it's a fairly abrupt start to the letter. And I just want to acknowledge that and acknowledge that, that, you know, it, it isn't as warm a greeting as some of his other letters, but that's because there is an important matter at hand and he wants to get to it right away. And so I want to do likewise. I want to get right to it. I want to address this issue. I want to, I want to find out why is Paul so fired up? Why is he so passionate about this? And as I've been thinking about this this week, it actually, um, I've kind of been mulling it over my head, as, as you might imagine, preparing to teach on this. And it just kind of hit me last night. Like, Paul is, is angry. He's mad. And he's not mad at the Galatians. We're going to see that, that he's, he's disappointed. <laughs> we've, all, we've heard that, right? I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Um, 
It's worse. Uh, it's always worse. No, he's disappointed with the Galatians, but he's mad at those that would teach these false gospels, at those that would lead his people away. When Paul leads someone to Christ, when Paul leads someone uh, to, to a saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus, we see that he calls them his dear spiritual children, right? These are, these are Paul's children. He, he loves them and cares for them so much. He remembers going into the town where nobody knew Jesus, and he began working alongside them and preaching, and, and he began telling them the good news of Jesus, and one by one, painfully, Paul saw these people one to Christ, becoming his children, he loves them dearly. And what's happening in Galatia is he's planted this church. Uh, you know, he has these spiritual children in a sense, and then he goes to another town. He has to continue on his journey. He needs to continue to plant churches because more people in more cities need to hear the gospel. And as soon as he leaves, other teachers come in and they start twisting and distorting and perverting the gospel that Paul preached. Imagine with me for a second, if you will, someone trying to lure your children into harm. This is what struck me last night as I was laying in bed thinking about what would I do if someone was trying to lure my child away from me? What would I do if someone was trying to lure my child to harm? Oh, I'd be mad. I'd be real mad. There'd be some things I'd need to repent of later, right? Like, whoo, look out. Stay away from my little girls, right? This is how Paul feels. That's why there's so much passion here. That's why he's so fired up right from the beginning. The sixth verse, he launches into this because it's his children. And he cares for them. And he's scared for them, right? Sometimes I get upset and angry when my children do something stupid and they, they go put themselves in harm. And what comes out of me is like this burst of anger. And I'm not angry at my children. I'm scared, right? And it manifests itself in that way. Have you ever experienced that where, where, where you're so scared because you care so much? It's like, I'm, sweetie, I'm not yelling at you because I'm mad at you. I'm yelling at you because I'm scared. I was scared for you, right? That's Paul's reaction here. For his dear spiritual children, these precious Galatians. And I think the, the same can be said of us now. I think Paul's heart would remain the same, that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, he loves us and he wants us to know that what is going on is not okay. He wants us to know that there are traps that we may fall into. There are other gospels, which in fact are no gospels at all. And he wants to warn us uh, against this. He wants to, um, he just wants to, to give us a heads up. He wants to steer us clear of that, um, of that risk, that danger. So as we examine this passage, here's, here's what I want to do. I want to first address the fact that we desert so quickly the gospel of Christ. 
I want to acknowledge right from the onset what he says here. He astonishes that you are so quickly deserting him. There is a history of God's people quickly deserting him. And we are a part of that history. It's valuable to know kind of the the condition of our heart. It's valuable to know our tendencies so that we can be aware and alert uh, and defend ourselves against this. So I want to acknowledge that we so quickly desert him who called us. Number two, I want to spend a little time talking about those who would distort the gospel. Those who Paul is truly angry at. Those that would teach a gospel contrary to the one that he brought to the Galatians. A gospel contrary to the one which is all about Jesus. And so we're going to walk through a few of those from different religions to um, twists on Christianity uh, to, to some of the really subtle ones that I think we fall into even in this church, things that I fall into uh, even uh, constantly. And then finally, I want to I spend a little time talking about the fact that when we desert the gospel, we're doing more than deserting the gospel, we're deserting him. We're deserting God, we're deserting Jesus personally. We'll spend a little bit of time on that. First, let's uh, get into this here. Um, we desert the gospel astonishingly fast. So the, the real gospel, and again, I talked at length about this last week, but the real gospel is, is simply this, that uh, God created the world, he created mankind, but we rebelled, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, the fruit. But more than that, each of us individually, we choose not God. We choose our own path. We choose our, our, our own uh, pursuits, our own passions. We don't follow God. All of us have turned astray. All of us fail to, uh, to be righteous like God calls us to be righteous. And so the relationship between us and God is broken. But that's okay because... I mean, it's not okay, it's terrible. Uh, But it's okay because God knew that would happen. God has a plan from the beginning. Genesis 3, as soon as we see sin enter, we see God establish and tell us about the plan where he is going to send someone to rescue us. And ultimately, that is Jesus who comes and lives in the flesh, lives the perfect life that we have been unable to live. And he dies the death that we deserve to die. He exchanges his righteousness for our unrighteousness, his perfection for our sin. He trades it with us. He takes our sin to the cross and dies. And if we will believe in Jesus, place our faith in Jesus, follow Jesus, we get his righteousness. The relationship between us and God is repaired. And we get to be with God forever, for all eternity. We get to be with God. We get to be with Jesus that that's the gospel, right? That Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and three days later, God the Father rose him from the dead, accepting that sacrifice in our place. That's the real gospel. That's what Paul preached, and that's what the Galatians are abandoning. Let's talk about upgrades for a second. I, I love technology, right? I, I love the iPhone, the, the computers, uh, the VR. I don't know if anybody's into VR. I think it's so cool. I love, I love this stuff. Uh, I love technology of all kinds. Drives my wife nuts. She's like total minimalist, would not have a TV or anything in the house. And I'm like, I want all the gadgets. Um, so it, it's all right. We find a happy medium. Uh, but what's something we've come to know about technology as a people? We've come to understand that technology has upgrades, 
constantly, right? We, you, you get a phone and that's fine and then like three minutes later they have a new operating system you need to download. You download the operating system and it, and it gets upgraded. Honestly, sometimes the upgrades seem to downgrade. I don't know what that's all about. I've, I've never had a computer update not break something. It just, that's, that's how it works. Uh, I hate it, but, but I love technology, so I put up with it, right? Um, the gospel is not like technology. That's the worst example I could have given. Okay, the gospel is not like, sometimes you just get into them and you're like, what am I talking about? Uh, it sounded good yesterday, I don't know. No, the gospel is not like technology because it doesn't have upgrades. There's no updates. The reason we have updates on our phones and our computers is because the programmers got it wrong, right? It's not perfect. There's things they can do to improve on it. There's security risks and crashes and bugs and glitches. And so they have to release updates. They have to force us to break things by upgrading. Uh, like Because it's, it's, it can always be better and improved on, the gospel is not like that. When you, when you upgrade the gospel, when you add to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. It becomes something else entirely. It's no gospel at all. And so it's, it's different. It, it doesn't need uh, completion. It doesn't need improvement. It needs nothing, uh, no twists at all. And, and it, it's not just our, our familiarity with technology that causes us to abandon the gospel so quickly because we can look back through our history and see how quickly people abandon God. Right, if we look at the, the Matt uh, gave us an example. We didn't even set this up. He gave us an example, Exodus, right? And, and it's awesome because God, uh, God sends Moses and he says, let my people go free that they may worship me in the desert, right? And through this incredible series of miracles, God's people are released. They are free from the slavery that they have been a part of. And then what happens? You remember the rest of the story? Like 20 minutes later, they make a golden calf and they bow down and worship it as the thing that brought them out of Egypt. Like, are you kidding me? How fast did they desert the gospel? How fast did they desert the one who called them out of slavery and into freedom? And over and over and over, for 40 years, they wandered through the desert forgetting God, deserting him who called them into freedom. It's, it's insane. And we can look at them and go, those silly people. But we do the same thing over and over. I don't know how many times in my own life, being forgiven by Christ, I turn to one of these distortions. I start adding to the gospel. I think I'm upgrading the gospel by changing a couple of things. And here's what I mean. Paul, Paul gets into uh, those there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As, I, uh, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is where Paul's real anger comes out here against those who would distort the gospel. There, there are many, many other Gospels. And they are far too many to name. I've got a list of 
12 or 13 or something. I don't know. I kept adding to it. I may add a couple more. We'll see how this goes. Um, but the, like it's always, there's more and more distortions and, and twists. Some of them are easier to spot than others. And so I thought I'd kind of start at the top. I love top 10 lists, right? Uh, so I thought I'd start here with like the, the most obvious examples and then maybe move into those that are a little more subtle, a little more prone to deceive us. Um, like, first of all, I, I just, uh, and, and I don't know everybody's background. I'm not here to offend, but at the same time, the next verse Paul says, you know, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So I'm not here to, to please anyone. I just, like, I'm just bringing what, what's in here. First, first off is, is Mormonism, right? Morm, the, the Mormon religion claims to be kind of a brand of Christianity, it's a distortion on the gospel. It's an addition to the gospel. It's an upgrade on the gospel, which is no gospel at all. Right? It, it's like Joseph Smith uh, didn't know his Bible all that well. Right? It's like he never read Galatians. Because I, like, I thought this was like funny. I, I don't know what you know about Mormonism, but essentially Joseph Smith, he's this guy, an angel. He, he claims an angel came and visited him and gave him a new revelation, a, a new gospel, a, a new thing to know. And it's on golden plates and he translates it. And then this becomes the Book of Mormon and the other writings that, that uh, then found this new religion, uh, Mormonism. But like Paul says right here, even if we, like even if Paul should show up, right? Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What happens? An angel from heaven shows up and gives them a gospel contrary to the one they received. Like, this seems really clear. Uh, it, I, I don't know, it seems easy. Um, and so, like, I actually think maybe Joseph Smith did see an angel. But remember, there's, there's angels that serve God and there's angels that rebelled against God. We know not a ton about the spiritual realm, the other spiritual realm, uh, things we don't see and experience all the time. I think it's entirely possible that an angel from heaven, one that was a fallen angel, a rebel against God, actually showed up to Joseph Smith, showed him some golden plates, and off we go. But if he was familiar with the, the Bible, if he was familiar with Paul's writing, if he knew, even if an angel from heaven shows up and gives you a different gospel, reject it. It's no gospel at all. What, what the Mormon religion does is it, it says it kind of acknowledges Jesus, and then there's another Jesus in South America, uh, and then you throw in there like a lot of moralism, right? Do a lot of good things. You need to act a certain way, be a certain way. It's exactly what Paul was writing against, exactly what Paul was defending against, exactly what Paul was warning his dear spiritual children against. Do not be fooled. No matter who brings it, even if I show up and I start preaching a different gospel, let me be accursed. That's how he starts. Nobody gets to change the gospel. It's God's. Nobody gets to change it. Uh, another common one, uh, far more common, I would say, is Catholicism, right? The, the Catholic faith. And now, to, to be clear, like, I think that there are Mormons and I think that there are Catholics who love Jesus. But as a whole, there are major distortions going on. Major distortions that need to be known and addressed, right? By, by adding ritual and strict observance, 
to the process of salvation, we lose salvation entirely. And the, the Catholic Church teaches many such rituals and additions, strict adherence, right? There, there is, there's a lot being added to the core gospel, and it feels so very spiritual, right? Because, like, isn't the point of religion to please God? And so doesn't it make sense that I should do this and this and this? in order to be saved, in order to be acceptable before God, it seems to make sense on the surface, which is why it's so deceptive. But it's all distortions. And as we see Paul say, I just want to say it again, a different gospel, not that there is another one. There is no other gospel. Once we start adding to it, we remove it altogether. A little bit of brief history uh, the, the Catholic Church, which means like the, the universal church, right? That's like a, a translation of that word. Uh, the, the Catholic Church was the only church. It was people that followed Jesus were a part of the, the holy Catholic Church, the, the universal church uh, that, that's going along. Everyone was under the, the Pope up until around the, uh, I mean, this is, I'm going to, somebody's going to be a historian. They're going to be like, he's so dumb. Uh, so like, Forgive me, okay? I sell paintball guns for a living. All right. So anyway, there's like, uh, we we have this point. Everybody's under the Pope until I think the 1400s, 1500s. Martin Luther, who's one of my heroes, he comes along. Um, He's a monk. He's devout. He's trying to please God. He's trying to do everything that he is commanded to do. But the reality about Martin Luther is he is paralyzed with fear because as he examines his own heart, He can see he can never be good enough. There's always sin creeping and lurking in his heart. And so he tries to be more devout. He tries to be uh, more serious. He tries to be, uh, you know, a better Christian, a a better Catholic. He tries to do everything he can, becomes a celibate monk. He does all of these things to try to please God, and it just leaves him more and more hopeless every day. He goes, I can't do it. I can't do it. And he reads the Bible. Many priests in that day had never read the Bible. It hadn't been translated to other languages yet. The printing press hadn't yet come along. It wasn't widely available. There were people uh, preaching that didn't know the Bible. And he reads the Bible. And what he finds is freedom. In fact, what he finds is the letter to the Galatians. It's Martin Luther's favorite book. We are studying Martin Luther's favorite book in all of Scripture. Uh, I, I love it. In fact, I found this quote uh, in the introduction to his um, uh, commentary on this book. Uh, and, and Martin Luther said, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it, I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine, which is the name of his wife. Are you catching what he's saying? I love this book of the Bible so much, I want to marry it. Like, that's a Bible nerd, okay? He's so into it. Which, like, uh, also his wife, like, this is not the most romantic thing you can say, right? Like, she, wait a second, what? What does that make me? Uh, I just thought that was a little bit funny. They actually had, this is a total aside, but they had a really funny relationship. Uh, 
like they're both, she was a nun, he was, he was a monk. They got married. Uh, they, they loved each other dearly. They have some of the most precious quotations uh, about each other, stuff you really want to put on a coffee mug and, and give to your wife on her birthday, like really sweet stuff. They were also like, like kind of snarky and sarcastic to each other. It was really funny. Um, so a couple stories, and then I'll get back to what I promise. He, uh, Martin Luther, they, they lived in this old like monastery or something, and he would just escape down to his basement. It had a big old heavy wooden door with metal brackets on it and all this stuff, right? He would just escape down there for days, studying and writing and all this stuff. Meanwhile, they had six kids. His wife's upstairs with all of these kids doing bedtime, doing food, doing you know all of this stuff. She had this garden. She fed the whole family. Uh, anyway, she'd called down to him multiple times. He didn't even respond. So she skillfully removed the hinges from the door and knocked the door over crashing down and said, hey, it's time for you to be a father to your kids. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty good. Uh, and then my, my wife mentioned that I had to say this one. It's, it's quick. Uh, he, he really struggled with depression, right? And, and he was feeling really depressed. He goes away on a trip. He comes back. He's just as depressed as when he left. He's, he's really down. Of course, they're fighting like this whole Catholic church and, and all this stuff. Anyway, um, he goes away. He comes home as miserable as ever. And when he went into the sitting room, his wife, Kate, Catherine uh, was sitting there dressed in black and her children round about her all in black. Oh, oh, said Luther, who is dead? Why, she said, doctor, have you not heard that God is dead? My husband, Martin Luther, would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust to. Then he burst into a hearty laugh and said, Kate, thou art a wise woman. I've been acting as if God were dead and I will do so no more. Go take off the black. Uh, right, so this is their relationship. I just, I think it's great. Uh, but that's what, that's what Martin Luther was fighting against. He was fighting against the, the, the Catholic religion, this oppressive addition to the gospel, right? And when he came to the book of Galatians and, and really the entirety of scripture, he found grace and he found peace and he found rest. So, oh, it's not on me. I don't have to be super pious. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to follow all of the rituals. Jesus died on the cross for my sake. Jesus paid the penalty. There's no more penalty for me to pay. All I have to do is to follow Jesus. That's it. That's the call of the Christian. Follow Jesus. Be in relationship with Jesus. Does he call us to obedience? Yes, sure. But we do that not because we have to, because we get to, right? We, we get to read our Bibles. We get to pray. We get to talk to the one who saved us. We get to talk to the one who, who died for us. We get to talk to the, the one. We get to read the scriptures about our rescue plan that God was working out. We get to leave behind the sin which has enslaved us and walk forward in freedom which Christ bought for us. We get to, not that we have to. We get to. Do you see the difference? Moving on now, there, there are the, the anti-religions. So we, we talked about a couple religions. There are some, some anti-religions, those that, that would not, and I think these are really common in our day. Um, the first, like false gospel here, good people go to heaven. Right? Good people go to heaven. Do more good than bad. You go to heaven. God approves of you. God, some unknown cosmic force out there, as long as you're kind of trying, he gives you an, a, a participation trophy, and you'll be just fine. You get into heaven with a participation trophy. It's all good. 
right? We, we hear this all the time. We, we're saved by our works is really what it's saying. We're saved by our works. It's on us to do good, not bad. Good people go to heaven. Whew, good news. Well, what's that mean about bad people? Well, you know, they go down there. Uh, this false gospel is completely devoid of hope. It leaves all the bad people out. If you've done a lot of bad, sorry. You're toast, you're history. And then you, you like, where do you define bad? Where's the line? Is it like at the murder level? We're probably all right. The like theft level? We lose a few people? Is it like the, the word level? Like if you say terrible things to people, if you are mean, if you lie, if you uh, are harsh with your kids, does that disqualify you? Now this group's starting to get a little bit small, right? What if it's the thought level? What if you're judged on the things you think, not even the ones that come out of your mouth? Now how small is this group getting into heaven? Pretty small, I think. Pretty small. There's no hope in that. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no hope. It, it, sounds, it sounds inclusive. It sounds open-minded. It sounds so very progressive. You don't need a religion. Reject all that. Just be good. But it's exclusive. It's intolerant of grace. It leaves, if we're honest in self-evaluation, it leaves everyone out. Right? And even if you are really, really great, all the glory goes to you for being such a great person. And stealing glory from God is a sin. So now you've disqualified yourself, right? For uh, Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If we are totally dependent on the law, if we're totally dependent on, on doing good, doing the right thing, the more aware you are of what the right thing is, the more hopeless the situation turns out to be. That's the reality of that particular anti-religion. There, there's another one which is a really big deal uh, some, some years ago which just disqualifies sin. It's, it's no big deal. There was a book written uh, called Love Wins. It's just like, you know what? Like God has these standards and he kind of sets things up, but then at the end of the day, it's like, psh, you know what? Everybody's fine. We're just, we're just going to open up the gates. It's no big deal. Uh, well, it is a big deal, right? It's a big deal for a number of reasons. For, for one, there's no justice there. Have you ever been wronged? Have you ever been sinned against? Have you ever wanted blood for something somebody did to you? Have you ever wanted somebody to be caught? Like, I have. I've been wronged. I've been sinned against. I want justice. It's good and right to want justice. And we give that to God and we trust that he is a good and just God. Justice is a good thing. And, and ultimately, 
when, when someone has sinned against me, has wronged me in a terrible way, and I want justice, I want someone to pay for that, either they will be held to account for that, or Jesus comes in and he will pay the price for them. Right? This is the other side of the gospel that I think we don't talk about enough, but like when I want blood for the wrongs committed against me, in many cases, Jesus says, I will offer that blood. I will go and die in their place. Should I suffer more for you? Or is that sufficient? Do you need more? Do you need more proof? Like Jesus is so gracious and so kind and so loving to, to die not only for my sins, but for the sins committed against me. Oh, I praise God for that reality. I praise God for that. We can trust God to be just and loving and gracious all at the same time. He's the only one that can. Sin is a big deal. It is such a big deal, in fact, that Jesus dies a brutal death to pay for it. To discount sin and the severity of it is to say that Jesus died for nothing. Say, like, that was no big deal, right? That if, if sin isn't that big a deal, then why did Jesus go and die for it? Sin is a terrible, horrendous thing. It matters so much. God cares so much that he goes and he dies over it. So we can't just discount sin altogether. Jesus takes that all on. He dies for it. Sin is a big deal. It's a very big deal. To discount that is to twist and distort the gospel and to lose it entirely. Uh, another one here um, is, is uh, we're all good people who occasionally make some mistakes, right? You hear this sometimes, oh, we're, we're all God's children, we're all good people, it's all fine. Remember that, that Jesus called out some of the Pharisees. Uh, now, the, these are Jews, right? These are, are very religious, devout people. He said, uh, no, your father is the devil uh, because you do the things that he does, right? Like you, you lie and, and you're uh, corrupt and, and you are uh, mean and ornery and they're conniving and, and trying to get him killed. Like your father's the devil. We're, we're not by default children of God. We become children of God. We are adopted into his family when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So let's get that straight first of all. And, and secondly, like we're not all good people. Uh, uh, Romans 3 um, which is actually quoting Psalm 14. Um, uh, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We're not all good people. We're actually all bad people. We're all bad people. And, and that's good news because Jesus dies for bad people. <laughs> Right? This is good news because Jesus came and he died on the cross for all of those who are sinners, for all of those who do wrong, for all of those who don't seek for God. He comes and seeks for us. And then there's some more subtle distortions that, that love to fly under the banner of Christianity. Um, there's, there, and I'm going to try to kind of cruise through these relatively quickly. There's the self-esteem culture. Right? This is really big in America. You should have high self-esteem. You should think highly of yourself. 
You should build your worth on your accomplishments, on your successes, on that which you're really good at. I I was raised in this, right? High self-esteem. The problem, though, is that uh, it, it, it dismisses Jesus We should have not high self-esteem, but high Christ-esteem. Because here's what happens with high self-esteem. We fail. We we at some point stumble and don't uh, perform like we think we ought to perform. We lose the job. We don't get into the school. We, uh, uh, you know, take on a project and it's an utter flop. And where does that leave our self-esteem? Crushed. We've, We've built our value on something which is not stable and sturdy. But if we build our worth and our value on Christ, he is the solid rock. He does not move. Our worth and our value does not move when we build our value and our worth on Christ. When we see that we have worth because God made us, we're made in the image and likeness of God. When we see that we have worth and value because Jesus died for us and he invites us into his wonderful grace, that can't be stripped away. I can fail to perform. I can, I can have no accomplishments and still be firm in that Christ esteem. There's the expressive individualism culture, right? Follow your heart. Um, remember Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The Bible tells us our heart is not to be trusted What are you following your heart for? That's a terrible idea. Your heart will get you into all kinds of trouble. This is a distortion, a twist, a false gospel. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Here's another subtle one, super subtle. Uh, It is taught in our churches sometimes that, that you are saved by your level of faith. Right? Have I believed hard enough? Have I believed true enough to be saved? I don't know. I mean, I think I believe, but like, do I really, really believe? Like, it, like I, I believe here. Do I believe here? Like, have I, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe I, I need to do more to believe more, believe harder. But the gospel says, uh, this is a, a quote from, from Timothy Keller. Uh, the gospel says we are saved through uh, through our faith, the first approach really makes our, our performance the savior, right? So the, uh, the, the, the first approach of, of like believing hard enough, right? It makes our performance the savior. The second makes Christ's performance the savior. It's not the level, but the object of our faith that saves us. That's so good. It's not the level, but the object of our faith. It's not that you have to have really, really good faith and and believe really hard. It's that you need to believe on Jesus. It's the object of our faith that saves us. Anything else distorts the gospel and fails to be the gospel at all. We have the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that... um, that if God approves of us, if, if we pray hard, believe in, in Jesus, that we will be blessed richly, we'll have lots of possessions. But it's completely in conflict with the fact that Jesus says on this earth we're going to suffer. Um, 
Remember the apostles, right? The, the men who actually walked with Jesus, who wrote the New Testament of the Bible. And, and what happened to, to them? Every single one of them was killed for their faith. That's not very prosperous. They didn't get a mansion. The only one not killed for his faith is the apostle John, who they boiled alive in oil. He survived, and they threw him in prison for the rest of his life, I think because God had some more books for him to write. Right? That's not prosperity. It doesn't match up. It doesn't line up with, with the scriptures. And if you, are, if you place your faith in Jesus and your bank account isn't growing, you think, oh, no. Oh, no, I'm not a real Christian. I haven't really believed. No, it's, it's a distortion. It's a twist. It's a false gospel. It's counterfeit, and it's worth nothing. And then there's the other side, the, the poverty gospel. Like, we're so good at making these things up, right? There's the poverty gospel that says, no, go the other way. If you have any possessions at all, you're not really saved. To be a real Christian, you have to believe in Jesus and sell everything. Believe in Jesus and, and leave it all, give everything away, then you're really saved. No, believe in Jesus, period. Believe in Jesus. Trust him. That's it. Now, God calls us to be generous. He calls us to be generous even when it hurts. He may even call you to give up everything you have to follow him. There are so many examples of that in history, namely the apostles. But none of that improves your position with God in ounce, not a bit. No amount of giving away possessions makes you more saved or less saved. Only faith in Jesus saves us. Some of us believe that we uh, need to inflict pain on ourselves to atone for our sins. My wife and I were talking about this uh, this week. I think this is one that, that she tends to fall into. It's one that I know I tend to fall into. I sin, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. And then I drop the ball. I do something that I know I shouldn't have. And I, and I sin against Jesus. And my natural reaction is, I got to suffer for a bit, right? I need to feel really, really bad about this in order for God to forgive me once again. You know what I'm saying functionally when I do that? When I say, I can't go ask for forgiveness yet. I need to feel bad a little longer. Then God will forgive me. I'm saying Jesus' death on the cross wasn't good enough for my sin, Jesus got me like 90% of the way there, and now I got to get it over the finish line. I need to suffer a little bit more. Do you know who suffered for that sin? Jesus did. Jesus suffered for that sin already. And you know the sin I'm going to commit tomorrow? Do you know who suffered for that? Jesus did. When he took me in, when God called me, when God saved me, he knew all about me. He knew what I was going to do. He knew how I was going to fail. He knew how imperfect I was. And he took me anyway. We add nothing to our salvation when we make ourselves suffer. In fact, we may be taking away from it. And finally, I, I just want to touch briefly on this. This is the exact uh, 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 distortion which Paul was addressing, and it's legalism. Right, it's Jesus plus some religious add-ons. Jesus plus strict adherence to some of 
some of these other things. What, what these other teachers were coming in, they were saying, you need to follow Jesus, yes, but then you need to follow all of the Old Testament law, the, the Mosaic law, the, the laws of Moses. You need to be circumcised. You need to not eat pork. That rules out bacon, okay? This is not a gospel. This is phony, okay? This is why Paul's fired up. Uh, listen, you cannot, I mean, bacon, you, you cannot add anything to the gospel. You lose the gospel entirely. And it's so easy, it's so subtle, it's so quick to slip in to our beliefs, to our faith, to our gospel, that, oh, I just need to do this and this. I need to believe in Jesus and, and do, you know, read my Bible every day. I need to follow Jesus and pray a certain amount that's how I'm saved. No, 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 no. This is a distortion. We believe in Jesus. That's it. We believe in Jesus. When we desert the gospel, when we leave the gospel and we start adding things on, we start upgrading, we start uh, distorting it, we are deserting Christ personally. We are deserting him personally. The one who, how does he phrase this? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. To desert the gospel is to desert Jesus. He wants us with him. He wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want all of our religious nonsense that we can bring. He wants us. He wants our heart. He wants us to love him and pursue him personally. Let us not do that. The band sang uh, the, the song um, uh, just a little bit ago, and, and, and it has this, this verse, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It gets me every time. Because it, it's so true to me. It hits so deep in my heart. I am so prone to wander. I'm so prone to desert him who called me. So prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. God is, is rich in mercy, I, I just want to conclude on, on this. I, I, just, I feel like I have to. The next letter over Paul in Ephesians, he, he kind of clarifies on this idea. He, he doubles down on it. And I just want to read this, Ephesians 2, 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. So what do we do if we've failed in this? Well, my friends, let me tell you, you probably have, because I certainly have. Well, the good news is the real gospel doesn't depend on our works. This is all good news because we can utterly fail in following Jesus. Our works can be complete rubbish, and what do we find? Grace. 
we find grace. It's not on us. Take the pressure off your shoulders. His burden is light. It's not on us. It doesn't depend on us. So I can fail at following Jesus. And I can be forgiven by Jesus still. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great news? As I went through that list of distortions on the gospel, I hope I offended everyone. I hope I got you all. If I missed you, I'm sorry. It's in there too. I ran out of time. And and in that offense, we find that I have messed up. God, again, I have messed up even in how I follow you. He says, that's okay. There's grace. Just believe in Jesus. Follow Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. That's the end of it. We're going to go to communion now. We're going to go to communion. We're going to pass this out. We're going to take it together, okay? The, the, the bread and the juice. Uh, and, and there's a specific reason we do this. We want to remember him who called us in the grace of Christ. We want to remember what Jesus has done for us. We're going to take this together um, because Jesus tells us to take this together. So if you want to get up now and, and start moving toward, there's uh, some ushers here that have communion. I think there may be some in the back as well. Just hold them for now, and we're going to take these elements together because Jesus calls us to. Jesus knows how prone to wander we are. He knows how quickly we can desert him. Paul's astonished, but Jesus is not. And he gives us communion to remind us every time we get together to remind us of what he's done, to remind us of who he is, to remind us of the real gospel, to bring us back from any false gospel and distortion that we've followed and walked uh, a false path that we've walked down. I want to read this and, and we'll take this together. First Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. Uh, this is the apostle Paul writing for, I received from the Lord what, uh, what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, right? And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread now. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's worship together.